James chapter 4. Now, what I'm going to tell you here is it's, it's actually hard to imagine. I couldn't even believe it when I read it, but this actually happened. Charles Colson, his book, The Body, actually entitles a whole chapter to this event. It's a chapter entitled Extending the Right Fist of Fellowship. And it was built around an event that actually occurred at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Newton, Massachusetts. And apparently at one of their church meetings, an all-out fight broke loose. And uh, that got started in, ter- in terms of the actual connecting with punches with their pastor Waite and the head deacon by a guy by the name of Ray Bryson. And they just went after it right in front of the communion table right there. And, I mean, the church is, you know, kind of startled and all, all this adrenaline and fervor is taking place there. And they're actually exchanging punches for a couple minutes when actually then Bryson, that head deacon, he actually tags the senior pastor in the chin, knocks him out. Well, then all these other people start rushing in and they apparently are fighting and then this melee breaks loose. They're hitting people. Somebody takes this big display of flowers, got a bunch of water in it, and they chuck that. This lady, Mary Dahl, who is the director of, they have this uh, called the Dorcas Society, she actually takes this hymnal and she throws it in the direction of that head deacon. It was high and wide, lands in the baptistry, makes a splash there. This fight continues until the police show up and break it up. Now, I'm, I'm telling you this because, first of all, I don't want anybody getting wild ideas, all right? Okay, don't think like, oh, he's sharing some sort of example that we should follow. No, that, not at all. Friends, if there's fighting going on, whether you're exchanging blows physically or verbally, something's wrong inside. There is an indicator at that church there's something significantly broken. Now, but, you know, when I, I say that, you're like, oh, that's hard to imagine, these folks breaking into a fight at their church. But is it? I mean, just kind of think. Different uh, churches, maybe you've heard about, that were skirmishes and they led to division. Harsh words were said. They've got folks that, that refused to talk to one another. And in fact, that's how a lot of church splits actually happen, okay? you got people that they got their own selfish desires. It's my way or the highway, and we'll show you who's boss, and pretty soon you got divisions breaking up. But it's not only true of different churches. It's true of uh, different Christian organizations, Christian clubs, Christian schools, Christian universities, different ministries. This idea of just fighting at the drop of a hat and allowing your self-centered desires to just kind of take over. And it's interesting, this isn't a modern-day phenomenon that's happening in Christianity. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul actually talks about an event. He says, he's writing to him and he's saying, man, I am so disappointed about what's going on. In fact, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, he says, For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you not what I wish. And you may be found by me, not what you wish. Meaning, listen, what's going on there is going to put me in a situation where you're not going to find me the way you would like me to be. And then he says, I'll tell you what, this is what's going on. Perhaps there will be strife and jealousy and angry tempers and disputes and slanders and gossip and arrogance and disturbances that are taking place in your church. And friends, anytime you've got things like this, gossip, slander, anger, Malice, people just quickly breaking fellowship over whatever little issue that might be. You got a serious problem. In fact, you have one of the greatest challenges that needs to be overcome. And you know what that challenge is? The challenge to overcome self-centeredness. When we're going through this book of James here, beginning in chapter 2, James, this pastor of a very large church in, in Jerusalem, 
he's addressing struggles and, and conflicts and issues and obstacles that people that follow Jesus need to overcome. He began in chapter two. When we come to chapter four, he's addressing one of the biggest ones, the need to overcome self-centeredness. Now, if we've been following along, if you've been reading the book of James, you see that he kind of ends one section with a hint of what's coming next. And that was especially true from what we saw from last week when we looked at wisdom. You see, there's two different types of wisdom. There's the wisdom that comes from above. That's from God. It brings about holiness. It's sown in gentleness and peace, and it bears fruit called righteousness. On the other hand, though, there's the wisdom that is from below. In fact, he says, this is, he says, Verse 13 of chapter 3, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. If you have wisdom, if you're living life skillfully the way God intended it, you know what? It'll be shown up in your good behavior and there'll be gentleness. But verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be so arrogant as to lie against the truth. This wisdom is not which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural and demonic. And he says this, you might want to put a little mark by it. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. The wisdom from below that basically says, have it your way, it's all about you, you're the center of the universe. It leads to selfishness, selfish ambition, jealousy, disorder, and every evil thing. That's in contrast to verse 17, the wisdom that comes from above, which is pure and peaceable, gentle, it bears great fruit. And he says, verse 18, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. If you're living rightly, then you will sow the seeds of peace that will bear fruit of righteousness. Now, chapter four, he begins by addressing apparently an issue that was taking place in some of these early churches. There is a huge struggle. In fact, the source of the struggle was this, their selfish ambition that was growing by following the wisdom of of the world. Remember how we just talked, looked at the wisdom from below? Well, there were people that were engaging it and following it, and it was having serious consequences in their church. And so he says, chapter 4, verse 1, what is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? What he's saying there is that you are functioning like hedonists. In fact, that word pleasure Greek word, edene, it's where we get our word hedonism from. It is to live with the idea that mankind's pleasure is the chief end of man. Okay? It's all about you. Whatever your lusts want, whatever you want, whether it's power, some sort of possession, prestige, some person, some pleasure, it's all about you. You go after it. Because after all, life is all about your own personal fulfillment. And by the way, this mentality is steeped in the church now. We're churches and God, it's all about us. What can I get out of this? What can this church offer me? And it's, it's, it's really adopting the world's view of hedonism. It's all about your own pleasure and your well-being. Very few people come to a church asking, what is it that I have to offer this body? Most people show up at a church like, what can this church do for me? It's, an, it's, just, it's buying into a world system. He says, what in the world is the source of your, your quarrels and your conflicts that are among you. You know what it is? You are driven by self-centeredness. It is your own pleasures. It's your hedonistic desire. Your craving for pleasure. Gratification of bodily appetites. Your desire for siege. It's creating havoc in your church. And he says, you know what? Verse 2, you lust. You lust and do not have. 
So you commit murder and you are envious and cannot obtain. So you know what you do? You fight and quarrel. Now, these are really strong words, but haven't you got the impression that James isn't one of those kind of little mealy mouth? Let me just put it really softly and lots of sugar coating. James is like, let me just tell you the way it is. He shoots real straight. He's, you might call him abrupt, but he says, you be, I'll tell you what your problems are. You have this lusting desire for what you want. And so you know what you do? You're willing to commit murder. You're envious. You can't obtain. So you know what you do? You'll just fight and quarrel over it. Now, I told you about Emmanuel Baptist Church there in Massachusetts. And it's, it's like, wow, hard to believe that, you know, you're fighting. And is it, is it hard to believe that you'd actually commit murder to get what you want? Well, it's interesting that history actually has record of that. The Bible records people doing that. Let me bring up an example. Like, you know a guy by the name of uh, King David? Yeah, good guy. Read one of his psalms today. Well, you know, he actually arranged for the murder of a guy by the name of Uriah. Why did he do that? Because he wanted his wife. Or uh, let me give you another example, okay? Uh, How about Ahab? When he was king, he murdered a guy by the name of Naboth. And you know what he wanted? He wanted his vineyard that was kind of next to his little palace area there. He wanted it and was offering, hey, I'll give you a better one than that. Just give me this one. I'll give you money. Just whatever you want. And like, no way. And Naboth's like, no, you're not taking this. It came from my family. This is part of my family. I'm not giving that to you. So uh, what does Ahab do? Well, what do you do when you're self-occupied? When, you're, when pride rules the day in your heart? Well, you go home and you throw a fit. All right. And that's exactly what he did. He went home and he's pouting away. He's got his lip out there. He won't eat. He's making a big scene. His wife, Jezebel, comes in like, what in the world's wrong with you? What are you doing? He won't give me that vineyard. I'm not eating. And she goes, what are you? aren't you the king? Don't you get whatever you want? Isn't it all about you? Well, they have, I'm just, I can't do anything. Well, Jezebel took matters in her own hand. Remember what she did? She arranged to have the guy killed, set him up. Killed him, and after he did that, all right, dear honey, you go have your little vineyard. And he had his wife do all his dirty work. Friends, this is, this is extremely serious. If you do not learn this lesson, your life seems to be destined to create devastation around you. You have to learn how to overcome self-centeredness. And the answer lies not within, but it comes from above. You know, Crazy things happen to our sense of judgment when selfishness and anger just keep rolling around in our heart and we kind of keep feeding and feasting upon them. Last year, uh, February 2009, there's a 27-year-old woman in Fort Pierce, Florida. She uh, she been thinking a lot about those uh, chicken McNuggets and uh, she she was going to go to McDonald's and she ordered her 10-piece McNuggets meal. You know how it is. When you're just always thinking about something, you know, doesn't that happen to you? You know, you just got to keep thinking about. It. Maybe you saw a little ad on TV, and you're just thinking about those McNuggets, you know, and how good they are, and how tender. Oh, you know, maybe I get uh, maybe I get sauces each one that they have, and you just kind of keep thinking about it. Well, apparently she was in one of those little funks and those moods where she was just thinking about these chicken McNuggets. She goes to her McDonald's place and she places her order for her ten-piece chicken McNuggets. Pays for it. Well, the employee that was working there. Um, Took the lady's money, put it in there, and then trying to get the order. Ordered it, but uh, oh, bummer. Guess what? They were out of the 10-piece McNugget. In fact, they had no chicken McNuggets. <gasps> and so 
he, this, this person reports back and says, I'm sorry, but we're out of ch- uh, chicken McNuggets. Um, you can have anything else on the menu, but uh, we don't have any McNuggets. She goes, well, I want my money back. Uh, and then he's kind of thinking about the policy manual. Like, wait, if they pay for an order, they can't get their money back. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I can't give you your money back. What? Sh- well, this 27-year-old woman, man, she became infuriated. What do you mean? She said, you can have anything else on the menu. Things of greater value, anything. I just can't give you your money back. But you can have to, would you like a McRib? Would you like a quarter pounder? How about a Big Mac? No, I want those chicken McNuggets. Well, it, she's all stressed out. You know what she's in? She's in an emergency. What do you do when you face an emergency? Well, you call 911, don't you? So that's exactly what she did. She got out her phone. She calls 911. They can't believe on the other end, like, what? Chicken McNuggets? They didn't take her seriously on the first time. She calls back two more times. Well, the short of it is she never ended up getting her chicken McNuggets. She did get a citation, though, from the police for misusing 911. Friends, I tell you this because when it's all about you and you're self-centered and your own desires and what you want, and you allow anger to kind of rule the day in your heart and your mind, big things become little things like, calling 911. And little things, like not getting your chicken McNuggets, become big things. It is what James is addressing here. Quarrels among you, because you're living for yourself and your own pleasures and your self-centeredness. Let me just tell you what happens. This is the real-life mapping out scenario. You get a desire for something. You want it. You want that person. You want that job. You want this kind of income. You want that sort of possession. You want this sort of pleasurable experience. And so you start fixating on it. You focus on it. And then this desire, it begins to start dominate your thinking. It's dominating. You keep thinking about it. And from there, it moves to a point where, like, even when you're asleep, you're dreaming about it, whatever that might be. And then it comes to a point where you're willing to actually destroy whatever's in your way to get it. Think of a lot of crime that takes place. You know where it all gets started? Get started with an unholy desire. And what happens is that these become like ruling passions in your life and you become toxic. And if you're thinking like, well, that's just for people that aren't Christians. James is writing to believers. What's the source of your quarrels? The problem is you got the wrong view of God. You think he's all about help making you happy. And you are living for yourself. You've set yourself up to be your own God. What do you do, he says? Well, listen, you got all these problems. You're fighting and quarreling. You can't obtain, he says, verse 2, at the end of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. And he says, one of the problems here is that you have the absence of what's called a prayer life. And you're not asking God for anything. And, And this is what happens. You see, You kind of know, like, well, asking God for this, that's not very spiritual. And so what happens is you you end up just not asking God for anything. I just want you to stop. What does your prayer life look like this week? Did you spend any time praying? Yeah, right before I ate. I did it. You know, I got that 30-second deal in there. I did it like five times this week. Okay, great. But did did you spend time with communion with God, talking with him, asking him things? You know what happens when we pray? When we pray, God starts purifying our desires and we find out that, you know, that thing or that person or this event or that sort of pleasurable experience that we're after is, after all, is not all that important compared to God and his glory and his kingdom. 
But we realize these aren't very spiritual things, so we don't pray about them. And then we end up just not praying at all. He says, you know what? You don't have because you don't ask. Bob Russell read of a, of a dad who was watching his boy playing in a sandbox. And apparently there was this big rock, rock in this kid's sandbox. And this little boy is doing everything he could to try to leverage this rock out of the sandbox. But he just he couldn't do it. And finally, the boy just gave up and sat at the end of his sandbox. And he was just totally defeated and spent. His dad walks out there and he goes, hey, what's the problem? I can't get the little rock, this big rock out of my sandbox. Do you give everything you got? Do you use all your effort and all your strength? Yeah, I can't do it. And the dad said, no, no, you didn't. You didn't use all your strength. You never asked me. I could get that rock out anytime, anyplace, anywhere. And friends, that's how it is. What are you facing in life that's like that big rock in your sandbox? You're trying to get it out on your own effort and you fail time and time again. Are you using all your strength? Everything I got. That's why I'm so spent. No, you're not. Because you have God. James says, you know what? You do not have because you do not ask. Come to me. Ask me. I can help you. And then he says, and then when you do ask, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. This is the idea of treating God as like a celestial Santa Claus. Okay, oh, I just want this. I want this car. I want this house. I want these clothes. I want this or whatever. And so God just be you're it's similar to like I'm going to ask him my little wish list. And that and you reduce God to like he's supposed to just provide things for you. And you miss all on the whole idea that he's to be worshipped with your heart and know him. He says, you know what? You ask and do not receive because you're asking with the wrong motives when you do ask just so you can spend it on what you see it. Verse three. On you, on your hedonistic drive to please self. Well, if you think he's been pretty strong and bold so far, you might want to hold on to verse 4. Look what he says. Got your seats there? Hold on. You adulteresses. (laughs) Wow. That's the last time you've been in church and someone called the people, you adulteresses. It is meant to alarm. And it had that exact same effect when it read. He says, verse 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, when we hear this, we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No one ever says that. But I'll tell you who said things like that. The prophets of old. If you've spent time reading the Old Testament, you'll notice that the prophets would sometimes call the people of God who were out just living in the world, living for the world, disregarding God, living in sin and never addressing it. You know what they'd say? You are an adulterer. You have left your first love. You are meant to be committed to God. He's everything to you. You are betrothed. You're engaged. He is everything to you and you have abandoned him. And so they'd say you are committing spiritual adultery. That's what James is saying here. Friends, when we live by the wisdom of the world, when we allow our base desires to drive us, when we think it's all about us, we're living according to the system of this world where it's about gathering things and gaining experiences and being recognized and prestige. You know what, friends? That is friendship with the world. And make no doubt about it. Friendship with the world makes yourself an enemy of God. Which 
will it be for you? There's no middle ground. You're on one side of the road or the other. There's no middle ground. And these folks were trying to have it their way. In fact, he's going to address some of that in his upcoming, upcoming verses. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, let me make this really easy for you. No one can serve two masters. You can't have two. You can only have one. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will despise the one and you will and you'll be devoted to the other. But you know what? You can't have it both ways. And then he said, you know, you can't serve God and wealth. James is basically saying, you can't serve God and the world. Which will it be? And the New Testament uses marital metaphors. You and I, when we place our faith in Christ, we are called the bride of Christ. We are engaged to him. He's our head. We belong to him. But if we're out going, yeah, God's nice, but he's a little category, but I'm really after all of this other stuff. I am living for me and what I can accomplish in my own life. And I'll call on to God when I need him or I'm in a big jam. That is basically spiritual adultery. When we come to Christ, everything belongs to him. Our heart, our life, our desires. And it's not a slavish like, oh boy, what have I got myself into? But when you see God for who he is, you delight in him. He's your joy. It is an honor, a privilege, a delight to yield ourselves and give ourselves to God, just like we got done singing here in our time of worship. He says, friendship with the world is hostility to God. When you are living for the world system, you are setting yourself up to be an enemy of God. When the values and the ideals and the priorities that are esteemed by this world are yours, you're living in hostility to God. And if you're thinking like, that's not that big of a deal, many American Christians kind of ride both sides of the fence. In fact, it's common to do that. We have we have songs on country radio that kind of espouse praying to God and the next verse about swearing or do something wild or crazy or, or adulterous. Let me give you one example. Remember when Paul was writing 2 Timothy and he wrote of a guy by the name of Demas, his friend? He said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, he says, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. He's just up and abandoned. And it happens. It happens all the time. It could be happening right now, apart from God's grace bringing you here. You're so enamored by the things of this world. You're attracted and allured by these solicitations to do what is wrong. They seem pleasurable to your body, but they are, in fact, taking you away from knowing the fullness and the joy of God. And you can love this present world, and you come to a point where you're just out and out deserting. Well, James writes, verse 5, Or do you think that the Scriptures speak to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. That is the key, friends. Verse 5, God has given us his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit is received when we receive Christ. He actually seals us. He marks us out as one of his own. And he wants our life completely given to him to be lived under the control and the fullness of the Spirit. He jealously desires his spirit that he has placed in our life. But when we're living by the things of this world for our own pleasures, you, in effect, are waging war with the Holy Spirit that has been placed in your life. So what is this cure? What is the cure for this, this problem of self-centeredness that 
I face? You face? Well, the cure is growing in the grace of God, which is made possible because of our relationship with Christ. Let me, let me just uh, remind you of something. When you and I placed our faith in Jesus Christ, what happened is that we, we turned from our self and our sin because we saw that indeed it was an offense to a holy, just, and loving God. And we believed in Christ that he's paid the penalty for all of it. And when we receive Christ, we do so by grace. Grace is God's riches and the redemption that is found in a relationship with Christ. It's all the resources of Christ given to us because of our faith in him. And we turn from our sin and ourself and put our trust and our faith in Christ as our Savior. And as a whole reorientation in life where we no longer live on the horizontal, but we live for him. And this same grace that saves us is meant to sustain us and strengthen us in life. This is the Christian life. And so what he says in verse 6, he says, but God, he gives a greater grace. He gives us what we need. We can actually overcome self-centeredness, not in our own efforts, but through the grace that we receive in Christ. And therefore it says, verse 6, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's kind of a paraphrase of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. God gives us the riches and the resources that are found in Christ to the, and you you don't want to miss this, it's what? To the humble. What does it mean to be humble? To be humble means that you're a person who actually bows low before an authority or a sovereign authority. So when you're humble, we actually bow low in our hearts, maybe even physically, like when we get down on our knees to pray, to recognize God as God and we bow before him. And that is put us, puts us in a position to receive the grace that God so freely gives his greater grace. Now, we're all going to face challenges in life. This issue of self-centeredness is a huge one. But we face all sorts of challenges like financial difficulties, relational problems, health difficulties. Let me give you a woman that perhaps you're familiar with, Joni Erickson Tata. When she was 17 years old, she, and as a result of a diving accident, becomes a paraplegic, okay? And she, she has written so much about how God has used this experience to truly free her up to experience God's grace in the midst of a very difficult life. And she wrote this, I feel that we, he will never give us a burden that we cannot bear. You know, I look at some of my friends who are more disabled than I, and I say, you know, I just couldn't handle that. I have a friend, Vicki, who at best can only move her head from side to side. I at least can flail my arms and shrug my shoulders. She's far more disabled than I. And I've said to her, Vicki, I don't know how you do it. And she says, well, with God's grace, I can. When Vicki looks at some of her friends who are hooked up to breathing machines, she doesn't know how they do it. And all of us are at some place on the scale of suffering. But she writes, some of us suffer more than others. But wherever God places you and me on the scale, he gives us accompanying grace to handle it. And I think maybe most of you probably know this, but that um, Joni, paraplegic, June, she's diagnosed with breast cancer. And all that she's been espousing in her books and on her radio show, she's on every single day of the week, Monday through Friday, comes to even a greater test now that she's got breast cancer. And I'd like to read to you what she recently said after she was diagnosed and went through her, her operation. Quote, I've often said that our afflictions come from the hand of our all-wise and sovereign God. 
who loves us and wants what is best for us. And so although cancer is something new, I am content to receive from God whatever he deems fit for me. Yes, it is alarming. But rest assured that Ken, which is that's her husband, and I are utterly convinced that God is going to use this to stretch our faith, brighten our hope and strengthen our witness to others. Friends, we can live like that because God gives a greater grace. Who receives this grace? The humble. All of us who are willing to bow before him. When your health wavers, your family dreams are shattered, your resources are low, or the spiritual flame seems to be but a flicker, go to God and go with humility, and he will give you the grace that you need. And in the following verses, he just kind of outlines guidelines for growing in grace. He just starts spelling it out. He tells you God is opposed to the proud. Those who are high and mighty and living for yourself, you need to know it is going to be a tough road because you're actually facing God's opposition. He doesn't want you to go that way. In fact, he saved you from that. But he gives grace to the humble, and he spells out what does it look like to grow in grace. He just says, like verse 7, Submit, therefore, to God. The idea is relinquish control of your life. And this has the idea of, it was used of soldiers who would align themselves, align themselves under the authority of their commander. You've got to remember who's God and that you're not. And when you align yourself willingly under his lead, you'll find it so freeing in your heart to receive all that God wants to give you, this great grace that he has for you. But this is kind of the crux of the issue. You and I, we don't want to. We like to live for ourselves. Our pride, so we think, has taken us quite far. And the proud individual, you know what? Let me give you a great characteristic of the prideful individual. He or she tries to control everything. They try to control their spouse, their kids, their money, their schedule. It's all about them, and they will clamp down. It'll be vicious, wicked. It's like, whoa, this is not normal. But they are prideful, and they are consumed with themselves, and they try to just control, even to the point where they're just choking and constricting off the life of the people around them. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That individual needs to what? Submit to God. Yield to his authority. When God is God of your life, there's a freedom to love people the way they're meant to be loved. He says, you want to grow in grace? Well, submit, therefore, to God, and he will give you what you need. And then he goes on to say the kind of the converse of that. Resist the devil, verse 7, and he will flee from you. On the flip side of it, when you if you are standing strong in God, you are resisting the devil. You are not buying in to his temptations, his solicitations. Peter wrote of a very this basically the same truth. First Peter, chapter five, verse eight. He said this. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Did you get that? Satan would love to consume you and rob you of your joy. He can't take your eternal life from you because that's been secured by Christ. But he can pretty much strip you down to a pretty base level. And you know what Peter then wrote? He says, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Resist him. How do you do it? Strong in your faith in Christ. 
the resources that we have in him. He says, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. And then notice what else he says. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You have to restore worship as your priority. Draw near to God. This was used of the Levitical priests as they would come and they would draw near to God. They did so in holiness. They would come expectantly that God is going to work. And you know what? We can draw, draw near to the throne of grace. We could receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But you have to go. It's crazy. We have Christians that are just downcast. They're beaten down. They're frustrated. And yet they don't go to the one who can help. Do you pray? Ah, oh, that prayer is not going to work. So, and you just kind of live in this melee of bad emotion. When in actuality, you can have the great resources of Christ, but you have to draw near to him, like he says. And when you do, he will draw near to you. He will give us what we need. You know, when we draw near to God, it's kind of like like coming to a mirror. And God allows us to see ourselves the way we really are. There was a man uh, who was in the service industry. He worked at a hotel. And apparently working in a hotel at the front desk can be a rather difficult position. And the problem, I guess, is this. Hopefully none of you have been a part of this, but people expect five-star service when they're at Motel 6, okay? And when they don't get it, they just unleash on someone, okay? And that person has to be generally the person in the front desk. And he was there, and he's taking the heat from some lady, okay? And he says, you know, he's been in this situation multiple times, but this time it was kind of different. He almost was kind of removed from the situation, just kind of, he's just standing there, Taking in this woman spitting and just blabbing and giving us and cussing him out. And he's looking at her and he's just going, you know, when she's doing this, she looks a lot like a monkey. And she's he's just watching her. She's just And then he had this brilliant idea. He got this giant mirror installed right behind him at the front desk there. Okay? There's this huge mirror there. And he noticed this, that as soon as people started unloading on him and giving him all their grief, they'd see themselves in the mirror, hardly recognize. And he said it pretty much completely died down and stopped. <laughs> Do you know why? As they saw themselves for who they are and how they're really behaving. And it startled them. Oh, who's that ugly guy? It's me. Whoa. You know what, friends? That's what prayer does. When you take more than the five seconds, God, help me today. Here I go. But like, Lord, and you lay yourself and you're quiet before him and you pray. You open up his word. You draw near to God. He draws near to you and he helps you to see who you really are, where you're really at, what steps you need to take. And he'll give a greater grace to enable you to actually do that. And it's even even the whole idea of drawing near to God comes from his spirit. And I'll just tell you from my own experience of just whether I'm studying the word or, or just private times of worship or like like this morning, just being able to worship with all of you, voices lifted up to God or whether I'm personalizing his word or studying the scriptures. I see my frailty and I see my faults and I see my sin and I also see the loveliness of the Savior. And it brings about growth. It's the experience of grace that comes from learning what it means to be humble. And so... He keeps going. You want, to, you want to know more about growing in grace? Verse 8. He says, draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you 
double minded. And this would be these these Levitical priests would actually wash their hands before they would come to worship. It was symbolic of I'm coming clean before you. I need to be pure and holy before you. And so he says, start taking your sin seriously. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. If you sin, come and renounce those sinful actions. Take your sin seriously. Confess it before God. Don't be rationalizing it or just, I'll just live with this or or think everybody else lives this way. Confess it before God. And he says, verse 8, purify your hearts, you double-minded. You people that are vacillating between the world, I think I'm God's man, now I'm back here. Purify your hearts. Come with purity. Come with the cleansing that comes with Christ. And then he says, says, verse 9, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. What he's saying is, when it comes to sin issues in your life, why don't you react with sorrow? Apparently, the deal was is that they were just kind of laughing it all off. Can you believe what Rufus did last night? Oh, man, that was crazy. That is so out there. Well, I can't wait to catch up with him at church and just find out how he's doing. And you see, the idea is that instead of taking their sin seriously, they were laughing at it. It was kind of a joke. It was what contemporary Christianity seems to be about. It's like, it's gospel light. It's, it's Jesus on your terms. When in actuality, our sin, our sin was placed on the Savior. That's why he died. No laughing matter. Running off of the mouth, tearing people up, your gossip, your anger, your ill will, your cutting people down. Friends, it's no laughing matter. That's what James is saying. All this, you should be mourning and weeping. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. It's not that Christians are supposed to be walking around like, Ugh, our life is heavy and it's, we dress in black and we're just in a continual state of mourning and then hopefully we just go to heaven and things will be better there. No, it's not that. It's that when we sin, we take it seriously, whatever that might be. Whatever we said, thought, did, we take it seriously. We walk in the joy of life. But we are serious about our sin. And then he says in verse 10, he says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Friends, remember this. Humility is the key to experiencing the power of God. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And everything in me doesn't want to be humble. Don't you find that? It's like we're, we're against it. But God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And when we're humble, if God wants to lift you up into higher positions or give you greater authority or more sphere of influence or to give you that position or whatever prestige, let him do it on his time. Right? He'll lift you up and he'll exalt you. He has you right where he wants you right now. There are lessons to be learned, especially lessons of humility at this present time. God is the, core, God is the master of the course of our life. And then he says, finally, in verses 11 and 12, he says, don't be speaking against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you are a ju- but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of law, but a judgment. And this is what he's saying. Stop. Stop just cutting people down. Refuse to slander your fellow believers. You see, he's saying. What you're doing is you're setting yourself above the law. And the idea that if you're a judge of law, that you're, you're above it. Now, now we, we kind of think of our judges, well, our judges have to follow law. But what he's saying there is 
you're setting yourself up to be like God when you're violating the royal law of loving your neighbor as yourself, like he talked about in James chapter 2, verse 8. You've set yourself above it, and so you feel rather free to cut people down to size, to mock them, to demean them, uh, to belittle them, to complain against them. He says, no, it should not be this way. Verse 12, therefore, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one, God, who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You know, when we're running around judging people, sticking up our noses to people, refusing to talk to different ones. We, we uh, segregate people. We got all sorts of discrimination things going on, like you addressed in chapter 2. You know what that is? It's pride run amuck in your heart. It's a serious issue. It's self-centeredness. And God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Remember our friends at Emmanuel Baptist Church back there in Newton? Well, this is what happened. They were hauled into court. And the judge happened to be a member of the local temple, Beth Shalom. He was a Jewish guy. And he looked over the police report of the incident, and he dismissed the case from his courtroom. And this is the stinging words that he gave. Quote, no charges will be pressed at this point, but I urge you to work this out within your own church. Your Jesus Christ may allow this sort of thing from his followers. But the Commonwealth of Massachusetts will not permit fights as a regular order of church service. Friends, if we don't have holiness, if there is not the moving away from self-centeredness and a greater vision and display of God in our lives, the world is not impressed. The world is not interested in a savior that cannot develop holiness and love and the lives of his people. And that's why James is writing. We have got to learn how to overcome self-centeredness. And as we do, we experience the grace and the joy of walking with Christ in maturity. And that's what he's designed us for. The biggest secret on how to do this is to be absolutely committed that Jesus Christ is Lord you got a problem with someone? He is Lord of your life, and he is Lord of that person's life. And when we are so committed to the Lordship of Christ, we can work out our difficulties with civility and by the Spirit. It doesn't mean that we won't have to confront, confront sin or exercise the sermon. Absolutely, other scriptures speak of that. But Jesus Christ is Lord, and it changes everything with how we live. And this is the great need, friends. We need people who are humble believers living holy lives, all possible because of his spirit that he has given us. You know, that's what we need in our church, in our neighborhood, our schools, our universities, our jobs. We need people who are serious about God. How's that? What does that look like? You're humble for God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. President Theodore Roosevelt is well known for his love for the outdoors. He actually established and created several national parks and monuments. Um, One of the things that apparently he did when he'd be entertaining guests at the White House and had all these diplomats and folks that thought very much of themselves and everybody's kind of jockeying for position. At the end of the evening, he'd rally all these diplomats and he'd have them come out to the backyard and they'd all walk out there and 
I mean, Roosevelt, I've read quite a bit about him, and you could just see his mannerisms there. He'd, he'd have all these guys, they'd all gather him out there, and he'd just start looking up at the sky. And at this point, Washington, D.C. didn't have all the lights that would prevent them from actually seeing all the many stars out there. He'd just be up there, kind of looking, you know, and these diplomats would be looking at him. I'm sure they're translators, like, what do we do here? He's looking at the sky, you look at the sky, okay. You know, they're all looking out there, and ah, oh, you could just see it. And he'd apparently do this for quite a while, and pretty soon everybody's looking up. And then after a long moment, then he'd say this, gentlemen, I believe we are small enough now. Let's go to bed. And they would end the evening. And friends, that's what we have to do. So occupied with God, the creator, that we, the creature, take our rightful place. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the amazing power of your word to address the hard issues of our life, especially self-centeredness. And Father, for the persons that have come here today who have never truly trusted in Christ and they are just enveloped with life oriented around them and they finally see that this is the way of sin and Christ is offering salvation. But they pray with me and say, Lord, you know about me. I turn from my sin and my wickedness and I trust Christ as my Savior this morning. I pray that you'd fill my life and change it and fill me with your glory. And I might bring you great praise for all eternity. And Lord, for all of us, you know this is a real issue we face. We know that you're opposed to the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And that is what we need, Lord. Grace. Riches from our relationship with your son, Jesus. So, Lord, would we bring you great glory by living lives that are holy and pleasing to your sight by the power of your spirit and the name of our Savior.